something that Ajahn Chah said once, which I find helpful to reflect on, which was that this practice that we do is as preparation, is preparation for when the passions hit the heart, when that which is potentially overwhelming to us, experience of suffering or fear or difficult circumstance, that we know then how to bring attention, we know how to meet the circumstance. So although sometimes sitting on a retreat, it can feel like we maybe are not doing very much, just uh, sitting here, being with the breath, being with the moments of our experience. There's an, a, an accumulative effect that little by little we, we develop the capacity to be more realistic, to be more with how it actually is. Uh, how, how more able to meet the circumstance of the present moment. And this capacity sometimes is really important when we're in a situation or something arises that challenges our well-being or our integrity uh, or is, has within it uh, the potential for suffering, loss, pain. We know how to, to be with that. We've developed the capacity, we've developed some strength, we've developed some skill without defaulting to, to, uh, to the, the, the tendency to just try and move away from the, the, the difficult. So to take courage with this practice, it's, another thing he said was all of this difficult practice is really to, to liberate the heart, for the heart to recognize its own innate liberated state. So to take courage, although we might sometimes wonder, oh, you know, just sitting here doing this, the fruits come and they do bear, they do, um, they do influence and can integrate and irrigate out into our lives. It's not easy to be with that which is difficult. It's not easy to be with the experience of suffering the experience of struggle, the experience of the, the mind that we would like to be more calm and it's just thinking or obsessing. It's not easy to be with discomfort in the body. It's not easy to be with painful memories that can come up or emotions or boredom or the sense of lostness. Some of these states, these visitors that will, that will come to us in a retreat it's beautiful if we can have, you know, have moments of joy, as someone was talking about earlier, if that spontaneously arises, insight, opening. It's something we also need to, to recognize and, and really savor and acknowledge when those moments happen, peacefulness, contentment, to really stop and really get a taste for, for that, that, those moments, acknowledging them giving credit for them so that we can get a sense for how to recognize the fruits. But when that's not happening and we feel we're challenged, 
then that's not easy to be with. But we should also take heart that that which isn't easy to be with, what the Buddha called the experience of dukkha, was the, the heart of his teaching, the, the reflection around the experience of unsatisfactoriness. He chose this theme to reflect on as the way to realize the end of suffering, our capacity to meet the struggle of life, the suffering of life, the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness was the very way through to the experience of liberation. So it's not that we have to be any different than we are or experience anything else than what we do experience for, to be able to cultivate this way. So tonight I'd like to reflect a little on this teaching, this core or heart teaching that the Buddha gave that is very pertinent to every human being, whatever culture, whatever situation they find themselves within, whatever land, whatever geography, it's a relevant teaching for the time that the Buddha was in. It's a relevant teaching for, here, for us here and now. And it's also the, the teaching in the cultivation of the five indriyas. When we look at the fifth indriya of wisdom, panya, prajna, it's this contemplation that helps to cultivate the capacity for wise reflection, for insight, for wisdom, which is the reflection on the four ennobling truths. These are truths that are alive, they're present, they're not, you might read them, first noble truth, experience of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, second noble truth, cause of dukkha, what gives rise to that experience, the third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha, the ending, the realization of the ending, Dukkha and the, the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the end of Dukkha, the path of practice. So we could say those four truths in about two minutes <laughs> and say, well, okay, that's it, got that down. It's pretty easy. You can get it cognitively very easily, write it down. But these four truths, to really deepen into them, are a lifetime's practice. They're a lifetime because in, in every day we're going to come across this experience of unsatisfactoriness. We're going to be challenged by that. So it's very alive. Although it was a teaching that he gave in what was called the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the, the first turning of the Dhamma wheel. It was the first teaching that was attributed to to him when he first made his decision to teach and then set the wheel in motion of the Dharma. This was the teaching he gave. And although that happened 2,550 odd years ago uh, in, in uh, Varanasi, Benares, it's still very pertinent now. It's still very alive now. So we can consider this teaching moves through time and space, but is also something that uh, has has potency for us to contemplate, to be with. 
It wasn't the, the very first teaching, actually, when, as, as the story goes, of course, the Buddha awakened under the Bodhi tree the night of his awakening. He'd been practicing, uh, had, uh, had uh, ta- undertaken the practices of the day that were offered, great yogic practices of developing and cultivating very refined states of consciousness, Um, and was able to attain to very absorbed uh, states where there was almost no sense of any uh, absorptions of consciousness, where there's no sense of perceptions or form, no sense of uh, any particular suffering, but what he noticed, he would always come down from those states of consciousness. He couldn't maintain them. They were, they were fragile. He couldn't maintain that level of absorption. And that was all that was on offer at the time of his practice. He practiced with all the great yogis, and that, what, that is what they would teach. These very, very sort of Olympic-type feats of yogic attainment of deep, absorptions into profound states of samadhi or jhana. But they were impermanent. It didn't resolve his fundamental inquiry, which was, is there anything that transcends the world of birth and death? Is there anything that transcends the impermanent? And even the very subtle states of mind he could attain to turned out to also be within, under the realm of the lord of change or the lord of impermanence, King Yama. And so he went on to to practice feeling, well, maybe maybe the problem was if he if he kept coming down, maybe the problem was the the world of form, maybe the problem was his his body, maybe this was hindering him the attachment to, to the body. And so he, he undertook then years of austerity, which were crushing to the human form, to his human form. Extreme fasting. I guess that was all the things that the yogis at that time were doing also. And he became, as he had this, I guess, this tremendous will, as it says in the early stories and recordings of his life, he became phenomenally good at these practices, these extreme practices, was able to even at one point practice not breathing, felt that the problem was even having a breath was disturbing to him. (laughs) You know, or he practiced not eating to the point of just having a, a rice grain every day. You know, so there's this severe mortification, this, this feeling that if one crushed the body and, and the world of form and the senses and didn't feel or didn't have any bodily interruption or even a breath that was disturbing the peace, then that was the way to liberation. And there was a certain point that he took that to... Su- I mean, he kind of was an extreme <laughs> fellow. <laughs> You know, he, he took that to an extreme, and at one point he couldn't, you know, he said his ribs were touching his backbone and he just was, skin was falling off. You know, he'd sort of bend down and fall over. He had no strength. 
And it was at that point when he was emaciated that it's said in the story that uh, a, a maiden came upon him. A compassionate woman came and saw the Buddha to be in this state of emaciation, this state of weakness, and offered to him a bowl of milk rice, offered nourishment. And at that point, the Buddha understood that actually it's a symbolic, in a way it's an archetypal image, the sujata, the woman, coming to offer the rice was in a way a symbol of offering of nourishment of the world of form. It's not in spite of the world of form that awakening happens. It's through embracing and realizing that the world of form is the place of nourishment. So this accepting of of form, accepting of the body, accepting he had to eat, accepting the nourishment that was offered from the feminine was the beginning of of him finding his own unique way of awakening. He then departed. I don't know whether he departed from the yogis he were practicing with or they threw him out because it's said that when they looked upon him accepting the milk rice from the maiden, they were disgusted because he'd gotten so weak (laughs) and dismissed him. You know, they all started to put him down a little bit. So, you know, look at Gotama, he's gone weak. In the, he's accepting, he's eating this milk rice, it's like ice cream or something. It was obviously something that the great, those yogis thought was a really um, demeaning thing to do as a practitioner. So he, at that point, he left you know, all known pathways that were available at the time and began to depend on his own inner guidance. And a few things happened. The the visitation of Sujata, almost like the the archetypal feminine, and the the, the re-embracing of form, the recognition that he needed well-being, he needed that nourishment. And then a memory came, a memory of when he was a child, a very simple memory that he remembered that when he was a child, that he'd been striving and striving and striving. And then he had this memory of sitting under a tree at a plowing festival at the village where he grew up. And as he was sitting there, he just peacefully was with the breath, the practice we've been doing. And he remembered that that practice led to a pleasure, led to a sense of well-being. And that pleasure wasn't something that he should be afraid of. He realized there was a pleasure that was supportive of the way of awakening. Before that, he'd crushed pleasure as something that was hindering to him, that was suspect somehow. So accepting that image, it's almost like the the deeper wisdom, the psyche throwing up something so innocent as the image of a child. uh, And the memory of, of, of that childlike openness, almost, the, the, the falling away of all the strategies, all the will, all the trying to force the issue, the, the openness of the child. And then, then with that nourishment from Sajata, and then with that connection of, of the memory, 
he began, he, he walked his journey to Budgaya, sat under the Bodhi tree, and then began the evening that turned out into the evening of his awakening, where he vowed to sit until awakening arose. He began the evening with the practice we've been doing, the, the being with the breath, being with the breath. And of course, he knew how to enter those very still, he practiced uh, hard, hard before, and so he knew how to enter those very still, concentrated states of mind. But rather than stay there, he used that to illuminate, to turn the mind to gain insight knowledge. Insight knowledge arose within him on the night of his awakening. The knowledge of he was able to see the it's called the interdependence of of all things of all beings. He was able to see the flow and the rising and passing of his own karmic inheritance. And primarily, he was able to recognize and understand that which transcends birth and death, what he called nibbana. He recognized an element that was that was undying. He recognized directly that there was, the, there was that which was not affected by change. Change would arise and pass, but there was something that remained. He recognized the nibbanic element. He recognized and awoke to the, what's called the amata dhamma, a dharma that is amata, Mata is, is death-bound, amata is the deathless. And then with that insight, he was transformed into a state of bliss and deep peace and, I guess, resolution on some level. And what, but what was interesting, in a certain way, his journey had come to completion and in another way, it was just beginning because the insight arose, but then there was, the, there was the movement to somehow find a way of putting that insight into form, into words, into teaching. Which in, you know, the, the Buddha's journey, we could say, well, that was a journey for one particular historical religious figure all those years ago, but we can also look at it as an archetypal journey that that speaks to all of us here and now. We can relate to some aspects of this archetype of the, of the Buddha's life, from the, the movement of, out of the pleasure palaces when he was younger, where he was seeking peace and happiness through, through pleasure, through sensory experience, through having... I mean, in a way, our modern society is very much like the pleasure palace. We can, like, just like the Buddha, when we're cold, we can go on holiday to a hot place, fly somewhere down to Florida. When it gets too hot, we can go up to a cool place. <laughs> when, we, when we get bored, we can surf a billion channels. Or, you know, we, we have to see, it's, it's a very similar thing. And then the, the ennui, the kind of the, the boredom, the disenchantment that started to happen with that life, and then the seeking, and we can relate to that. Very much so. And then in the same way, perhaps we might be able to relate to the, you know, as insight grows in us, there is something that 
feels like it doesn't come to completion until we find a way to live that insight, whether it's through speaking it, whether it's through how we, the choices we make, it's somehow not grounded, it's not brought back into form again. And interestingly enough, the Buddha didn't find it particularly easy, <laughs> which is, I think, something I can certainly relate to. Trying to speak Dharma is not easy, trying to live Dharma is, is challenging. And in fact, at first it said he was extremely reluctant and just really preferred to hang out in this rather blissful state. And so for many weeks he just, you know, was practicing by the Bodhi tree. They said for one week he just stared with eyes ungazing at the tree uh, which sheltered him through his awakening process. So I find that a, a, a beautiful image. I doubt whether it's totally literally true, but the sense of this communion, this gratitude, this appreciation for the tree, and then you know, at the moment of his enlightenment, the recognition from Mother Earth, blessing his... She recognized, he got the blessing from Mother Earth. No, no one else would particularly recognize, none of the other yogis, but Mother Earth rose up to recognize his awakening. But he still had, you know, there was still this reluctance to come back into form. There was still some, I guess, the sense of, well, maybe go off to the Himalayas and sit it out. <laughs> Goodbye, sweet world, you know. And it's said at that moment that a great god from the Brahma realm descended before him. And it's interesting that Brahma Sahampati was one of the gods of the Brahma realm. And it's interesting because the Brahma realm is the realm of form. It's the realm of create, creation. So it's like, okay, Buddha, that's great, but you're not finished. <laughs> Came down to visit the Buddha and with hands in Anjali bowed before the Buddha and said, please, for those... You know, with a little dust, there will be those that will understand your teaching. Please go forth for the welfare of the many folk and turn the wheel of the Dhamma. And so Brahma Sahampati, in many ways, symbolizes that, that movement of compassion, the recognition of suffering, the recognition that there is things, there are ways that we can use this life to help alleviate suffering for others as the awakening process unfolds. So it's said at that point that the Buddha um, took that on, that invitation, and began his walk from, from Benares, from Budgaya to Benares, which is a long walk. If you've been to India, you'll know it's a pretty long way. It's overnight train journey, slow, slow train. And on the way, he met someone that came up to him and said, you know, wow, you look pretty peaceful. You know, who, what are you about? And this was the, the Buddha's first teaching when basically he came out with a lion's roar, an utterance of enlightenment, something to the effect, I am the world transcender. I have no teacher. No one has realization in the way that I have. There's no one in this world that I see that knows what I know. And, and the guy apparently looked at him and said, nice for you, and walked on. So, 
So it was his first teaching, but it didn't really catch. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you do with that? You know, someone says, I'm enlightened, it's great. It's like, well, great, you know, good for you, you know. So you believe it or you don't. Or you... So then by the time, I guess he'd sort of thought about it a bit more, by the time he got to Benares, as he walked uh, to meet back up with his five yogi friends, he said that he... He came towards them and they all said, oh, there's that Gotama, that guy that took the milk rice from the maiden. You know, let's not get up for him. And, you know, he's just a fallen yogi. He really lost the plot. You know, he's given up the ascetic practices. But it's said that as he came nearer, he had such a radiancy, such a presence that they couldn't not respond. And so they laid a seat down and sat and were open. They were open to hear. And he said, have I ever spoken like this before? And then he gave this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, in which Kirisara mentioned that the, one of the five disciples, called Anya Kandanya, Anya meaning the knowing, realized enlightenment on, her, on hearing the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. He realized that all that arises ceases. It wasn't a big tantric initiation. (laughs) It wasn't a deeply esoteric transmission. It was a very simple recognition of impermanence. And through the recognition of impermanence, the seeing, the direct seeing through the Dhamma eye says that Anya Kandanya's Dhamma eye opened and saw that which transcends impermanence, he saw the deathless, recognized Nibbana. And this, in a way, is a template for us. This teaching is absolutely realizable and doable for us. And it's very interesting that the way that the Buddha began, he used the template which would have been, in some ways, quite familiar to to his disciples of the time, which was the, uh, a template taken from Ayurvedic medicine, which was to look at um, disease, the symptom, the cause, the cure, the remedy of disease, the sort of four aspects of disease. And he used a similar template to lay out his four truths, that there is a symptom the first noble truth being this experience of dukkha. There is this experience of dukkha. He didn't start from the place of there is enlightenment. But he just started from the place of something we can, we can relate to. You know, every one of us today has experienced dukkha. It's something we share. You know, whether you're the Queen of England or the beggar on the street of Calcutta, one experiences dukkha. You know, it's not so sure who experiences the most, quite frankly. <laughs> Being the queen is probably not an easy thing. But So this, this dukkha, dukkha, dukkha has many meanings, meaning that which is hard to bear, that which is hard to be with, also a translate, translation that I like uh, very much, which perhaps is an older translation, not so common found in one of the early um, British translations of Pali was the do meaning apart and ka coming from akash meaning space. 
or or the the eye the 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 sense the of being apart from the perfect or apart from the whole this feeling of somehow not being whole or this sense of something not quite not quite in place the feeling of dis-ease that you know it can be very subtle just the the feeling of you're not quite sure but there's a lack of peace a lack of wholeness the sense the fundamental sense of separative consciousness the eye that stands out from being woven into the web of the interconnected world around us that experiences this sense of the dukkha of separateness and it can be more coarse you know the suffering of lo- the loss of loved ones being with the unloved the suffering of physical pain, emotional pain, the suffering of sickness, the suffering of death. And rather than what usually happens when we experience dukkha and what we've become very, very good at and what we were contemplating a little bit today as we try to steady the mindfulness on our moment-to-moment experience, it begins to illuminate how many strategies we have to avoid the fundamental experience of dukkha satisfactoriness, very sophisticated strategies to keep moving our attention. And as we start to hone in, you know, a lot of us, will that's what we're confronted with. And so the Buddha, to each of these truths, he gave a practice. So with, with the experience of dukkha, he encouraged, rather than avoid, distract, deny, repress, project, blame or self-blame there's something wrong with me because I'm suffering I'm damaged goods (laughs) you know that we interpret that experience in a very personal way Buddha said that this experience of dukkha is that which needs to be met or needs to be turned to or needs to be contemplated or needs to be understood stood with born with so it's a very simple, it's a very simple practice. It's not, he's not saying, okay, there's suffering, you've got to try and fix it, sort it out, understand, get, get it all right. It's just this movement, in the, in the movement of the training of mindfulness, as we train that steadying of attention, which as it gathers capacity, gathers power, then we can have the strength, the the mindfulness begins to have the strength to just stay steady with the experience of dukkha if it arises. Just meeting it. And as we meet the moment, what we begin to, what we begin to, it can explore is what is really the dukkha? Where is the dukkha arising from? Where is it really arising from? And, and in, in the Buddha has something very interesting to help illuminate for us the process of inquiry around this fundamental experience. He talked about different kinds of dukkha. There's, there's the dukkha, what he called dukkha dukkha. I don't know if he called, that, called it that or these were categorized later on as the teachings got more kind of systematically laid out. But it's, you know, wherever it com- comes from, it's pertinent. The, the experience of dukkha dukkha is just, you know, just the, the, the pain of embodiment. 
you know, we might not be able to really ever alleviate the sore back or the, you know, as we age, the creaky knees and all of that. That's something that's inherent already in the compounded phenomena of taking birth, being incarnate. We're going to be subject to a certain amount of, of pain and discomfort, getting sick, getting a cold. There's what he called a more subtle pain of just the sort of anguish, the subtle anguish of something, the things passing the loss in life, the passing. There's a certain, even the Buddha felt that when his, when his two great disciples died, Moggallana and Sariputta, he said it's like two great trees had fallen down. You know, it's a, I don't know if you've ever had a favorite tree. I remember when I lived in one of the monasteries, there was this wonderful tree. It was so ancient in, in Britain was one of these really massive ancient oak trees. And I used to love to hang out with it. And I, it had a little pathway around it. It was a shortcut. I was telling you the other day about you know, coming from the cottage where, where we lived as nuns, going up to the main shrine room. I'd shortcut around this oak tree. And then one night in the 80s, there was this hurricane. I mean, Britain doesn't usually get hurricanes. And we had this phenomenal hurricane, which, you, of course, you know about here in the States. And the whole tree was uprooted. And it crashed. And I remember feeling this utter desolation and sadness at the loss of the tree, the death of the tree. And so when I came across that passage, I could, you know, it really communicated something about and it's beautiful the way the Buddha made his images. You know, he, he lived in forests, he walked in forests, he was born in a forest, he died in a forest, he sat under a tree on his awakening. A lot of images from nature and the natural world. So that sense that we all feel of you know, the passing of things, the, you know, the, the anguish of feeling what's happening on the planet. You know, we're seeing so much of that anguish from the, the forms that are, that, are, that are being destroyed. The loss of species, the you know all the whole story we know about, and then in that sense of that natural response as we feel it in our body. But there's a particular you know these kinds of dukkha, the Buddha said, in some ways are inherent. But there was the dukkha that he talked about that we can completely free the mind from, was what he called the dukkha of ignorance, the avijja of the mind, the not seeing clearly the nature of reality. And when we actually really see that, we realize it's not really, pain isn't actually the problem, it's a problem, but it isn't a problem. It, the problem really is our demand that it should be another way. That's the dukkha. It's this push and pull around the moment of how it is. It's this demand, as Kitty Sarah was saying last night, that conditions should be other than they are. You know, yes, we try and make the body conditions life as good as we can, but there also has to be the recognition on some level that all conditions, this body, even this planet, is, has its own nature to arise and pass in its own time span. And when it's our demand, it's this demand that the world be other than it is, and it's not a position to say we shouldn't respond, but it, this is a much, it's a much subtle level. 
It's the demand that we should be other than we are, that the body should be other than this than it is, that generates this experience of stress and struggle and dukkha. So the Buddha then went on to the second noble truth from as we start to reflect on the experience of where is the suffering here? What is actually, what, why is this arising? Why am I suffering now? Why am I struggling now? And then as Ajahn Chah would say in his simple and earthy and direct way, he said, if there's dukkha, it's because of the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. Either we're sitting here and we want something different or we don't want what's here. We want, we, we're sitting here and we want it to be morning. We, we sit here and we want the Dharma talk to be finished and in bed. Or we're in bed and we want to be somewhere else. We're out of the retreat and we want to come to the retreat. We're in the retreat. We finally got here after months of planning and we want to get home again. You know, and, and, we, and we get constantly deluded by that, the, the movement of wanting and feeling that when we get what we want, it will all somehow be resolved. And the wanting is very deeply rooted, of course, in, in the not wanting. I don't want to be with this state of mind. I don't want to be with this unpeaceful uh, experience. I don't want this emotion. I don't want my painful knee. I don't like aging. <laughs> I don't want my wrinkles to... Is that still me in the mirror? My God. <laughs> I don't want people to be like they are. You know, why do they do those things? You know, they're so dumb sometimes. <laughs> and why I wish I was, I don't want to be the way I am. I wish I was more, you know, kind of perfect, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you know, so it's all of this unconscious you know, resistance to what is, wanting what isn't, generates, projecting that on the moment of the experience. We, we basically, the, the ignorance of the mind is creating this dukkha. No one else is doing it to us. And that gets more complicated. We feel someone's doing it to us. It's unfair. So in this second noble truth, the Buddha contemplated the practice is to recognize what he called the, the tanha, the thirsting that comes, that arises. The three forms of tanha he talked about, the sensory tanha, kamatana, which means constantly scanning the sensory realm for the right experience to fulfill the sense of lack of completion. The right, you know, someone or music or sight or holiday or something to just alleviate or to fulfill. Or the, the closely related, the, the feeling of what he called bhava tanha. You know, these, these energies of desire are not, it's not a judgment value. It's just when they're unconsciously pushing us around. When, when they become conscious, we can transmute that energy and we can use it in more skillful ways, but the unconscious relationship to desire, when he said there's bhava tanha is operating, there's always this feeling of not being good enough. It's always like, I need to be more peaceful, more enlightened, more this, more f successful, more wealthy, more whatever 
we feel we need to be. And the illusion in that, of course, is we, as we know from when we look at our celebrities, when we look at people that are supposed to have it all down, you scratch the surface and you realize, you know, there's a pile of dukkha. It's not quite what it seems. Or, or when we really finally get yeah, to where we want. Kinesaro was telling me once about one of his old friends who was a CEO, top CEO, one of the top companies in South Africa. Very highly, highly successful, very astute businessman. Um, had accrued a lot of uh, assets, wealth, etc., etc., and was planning, planning, planning to go on the holiday. Had worked really hard, and when he finally got to the holiday, he just couldn't enjoy it. And he was just restless, irritable with his partner. And then eventually he came to see Kirisaro when Kirisaro was a monk. And he, he had an insight about it. He said, you know, I spend the whole year planning this darn holiday. <laughs> and I finally get there and I couldn't enjoy it. You know, I just, and so this, this illusion that when we get there, or the, or the, the, the sister the third sister, a kind of, or brother, or, 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 or uh, connect, you know, um, root aspect of this tanha, this thirsting kind of energy is when we've had enough, when we've experienced enough, then the feeling of really not wanting to be here, what's called vipuva tanha, which is, which is a, a sense of, we, we get it in, in subtle and profound ways just like not quite wanting to be here. <laughs> Daydreaming, fantasizing, disassociative tendencies, or, or hiding under the duvet kind of feeling. Or, you know, it, it can be a very profound sense of finding it very hard to be embodied, just to be here. It's very challenging. So as, you know, the, the practice with these three forms of tanha would have recommended is just as we start to connect and see them is to 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 let them be or not to to let them go to to not identify to see them for what they are you know when we sit here and we we feel the sense of wanting not wanting to to be able to recognize that bring it into consciousness to contemplate there is this wanting or not wanting, operating. I don't want to be here, I want to be somewhere else. And as we can just let that be and not move on the energy, then what we start to experience, what we notice, is that the desire itself will well up and sometimes it will scream, you know, like, get me out of here. <laughs> and we really feel us, can hear that sometimes on a, when, we're, when we're limited in a meditation retreat. You know, with the mindfulness, this is why mindfulness becomes so vital as a transformative cauldron for this energy. We just hold and breathe with that. The same quality of attention we brought to breath, we bring to that. And then we can watch it arise, and then as it begins to cease, as we notice the, the letting go or the letting be or the not moving on those impulses, then we begin to get inducted into this third noble truth. We begin to notice that there is something that remains. 
but the feeling of I need to, I want to, I'm not enough, I've got to get somewhere, I don't like it here. As we watch those impulses, those tendencies, that thirsting arise, and yet we just stay present, stay present. And in the cooling, we begin to get a taste or a feeling for the dispassion. It's called the viraga, the dispassion, the the not being compelled to have to to have to be driven by the, the force of, of thirst thirsting of tanha. We can be, begin to recognize this third noble truth. The encouragement is in the first noble truth, the practice is there is the experience of, of dukkha, it needs to be uh, met. It needs to be contemplated. Second noble truth, the, the aversion, the wanting, the grasping, the becoming of the mind needs to be let go of, just seen. And just explore that in a small thing, just a small, like I really, gotta, I, I really need that cup of tea, or I really need to get away from this, and just see what happens if you don't move on that. And you see the, 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 the movement changing, and yet something remains. The third noble truth, as we stay with the movement and we recognize this important insight of the, the changeability that arose, it felt so strong, it felt so powerful, it felt like me. Desire always feels like me, it's so seductive. And then as, it's, as it dissipates, we recognize there's that which remains. With this third noble truth, the Buddha said, the practice of the third noble truth is to recognize the heart as it is, the recognition of awareness, the presence, that which is knowing, that which is just here, that which isn't desire, that which isn't getting somewhere, isn't pushing away from the moment, isn't creating the next thing, that which is listening, deeply present, deeply listening. We recognize what remains, the suchness, the suchness of here. We can't get behind that, we can't know it as an object. It's not an object we can observe, we can only be that, be that which is just present, just here. And as we recognize in moments, we'll we'll recognize it because the taste of it will be peaceful. A taste taste of peacefulness, taste of a sense of relief. The realization of the third noble truth is called niroda, which has an interest, usually it means cessation, and it sounds like everything has to stop. (laughs) Thinking has to stop, breathing, that's what the Buddha was doing before his awakening, trying to stop everything, and that that was enlightenment, just stop, stop. And I know when I I first meditated, I I was like just trying to stop everything, just stop thinking, stop area, just stop, you know, somehow if it all stopped, then that would be awakening. But what, it, what stops is not movement, 
not breath, not sensory experience, not thinking. You know, there's, there's still karmic momentum, but what stops is the identification, is the being shaped as a self around the movement, the claiming of the I as what we can see, know, think, hear, taste, touch, remember, any object that we see ceases to become a source of identification or designation for the self. The stopping, the relinquishment of grasping. Another way of talking about the third noble truth is the, is the letting go or letting be or the Pali word niroda meaning without walls. It has, without impediment, it inducts us that the the fundamental nature of jitta or heart or mind is actually without impediment. There is no suffering. There is no walls of the mind. There is no limitation. There is no edge, edgeless. There is no personal ownership of that. And yet it's, there's deep intimacy and yet deep impersonality. The very nature, the very simple nature, the recognition of that which is. That which is here and now, listening, present, not becoming, not pushing away. Recognition, that which is spacious and yet without space. That which is without time, always immediate here and now, present. And it's not, you know, the the realization of the third noble truth, this niroda, wall, the, the heart without walls, the mind without walls, imminent, luminous, present. Buddha said it can only be realized here and now. It's only ever here and now. It's not when we've done three billion retreats and 4,000 prostrations and met the guru on the mountaintop in the Himalayas who says, touches like Kitty Sars last night, touch you on the head and say, there, you got it. <laughs> you can do all of that and still have doubt. Did I really get it? <laughs> It's something to be recognized for each individually, recognized by the wise individually, here and now. Not in the future, here and now. So this, you know, as we, you know, if we start to think about, well, how do I do that? Then we're already a a little off the mark. So the practice, the fourth noble truth is the practice of the way, the Eightfold Path the heart of which is the practice of mindfulness. And the fourth noble truth, the Buddha encouraged that we cultivate the training, the practice of the fourth truth is the cultivation of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the path of deathlessness. As we are mindful, we're already connecting. We're already rooted here and now with unshakability of the heart. Mindfulness is the way to, to one, to hear. 
In this teaching of the Four Noble Truths, we enter into it any moment, any time, wherever we are, in a meditation retreat at IMS, driving to work on the freeway, having a conflict with someone, cooking in the kitchen. Once we we can really contemplate and begin to recognize the experience of dukkha, then there's the royal road into awakening begins to open up. The Buddha said, it's as if my knowledge, as if he was walking in a, in a, a forest with his disciples, and he said that the knowledge of an awakened one, it's as if my knowledge is as great as all the leaves on, this, on these trees. But what I really, the heart of what I really teach, what you really need to know for liberation, and he, he bent down and picked up just a handful of leaves, is just like this handful of leaves. It's just this much. You don't need to know a lot for this practice, actually. And he said, this handful of leaves represents the Four Noble Truths. This is the heart core of the the Buddha's way. The great turning of the wheel at Varanasi, the deer park, all those years ago, still is able to roll into our lives here and now. Finishing this evening with um, what the Buddha said about his own recognition and laying out of these four truths. Just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road traversed by people of former times with beautiful pools, groves, and gardens, so have I seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully, coming, having fully come to know this path, I have established this way for the welfare of all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.